This week, we have a very special guest, award-winning science journalist and space historian Andrew Chaikin, best known as the author of A Man on the Moon, The Voyages of the Apollo Astronauts. Yeah, one of our favorite books, that's for sure. I'm very excited about this interview. Please let us know what you think of what we're doing. You can contact us at Space and Things One on Twitter and at Space and Things Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. But right now, sit back and enjoy episode 78 of the Space and Things Podcast. You're listening to Space and Things with Dave Giles and Emily Carney. I'm Emily Carney. And I'm Dave Giles, and welcome to episode 78 of our podcast. Now, we've got so much to get through today. We've got a fantastic interview coming up. But firstly, very briefly, Emily, how was your birthday, and how was the Epcot Center? It was marvelous. I had a wonderful time. Uh, Thanks to everybody who reached out and wished me happy birthday. But it, it was marvelous. If you follow my personal social media, there's pictures on there, but... I want to get to this interview, so let's go. For sure. So today we get to interview one of our favorite authors. Emily, I don't know if you remember, it may have been episode one or it may have been the pilot episode that we never released, but in one of our first recordings, I asked you what your favorite space book was, and you said, without hesitation, A Man on the Moon by Andrew Shakin. Well, it's mine too. And today he's on the podcast talking to us. Andrew has been writing about space and science for more than three decades now, but is still best known for A Man on the Moon, which was first released back in 1994. It was the main basis for Tom Hanks' 12-part HBO miniseries From the Earth to the Moon, which won the Emmy for Best Miniseries in 1998. The book took him eight years to research and write, and that included over 150 hours of personal interviews with 23 of the 24 lunar astronauts. Unfortunately, Jack Swigert had already passed away. He has been published in pretty much all the top space-related publications and has appeared as a science and space expert on some of the biggest uh, radio and TV programs. He's written a number of other books as well, and Dave will list these in the show notes for you to check out. He's also one of the founding members of the International Association of Astronomical Artists. So, without any further ado, let's speak to Andrew Chaikin. Okay, we're off to a good start, Blade. Cool. All right, welcome, Andrew or, or Andy. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, we, we really appreciate you being on our show. I'll begin with like a softball type question. So... <laughs> Does that mean there'll be hardball questions later? Oh, yes. Yeah, no, yeah. we're going to interrogate you later. No, I'm joking. I'm joking. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll be prepared. I'll be ready. <laughs> so let's just go right back to the beginning. What, what got you interested in spaceflight history? I was a space kid. I was um, born in 1956, um, you know, the year before the space age began. And so by the time... I was old enough to read, there were all these books about what it would be like to go to other worlds. You know, nobody had been in space yet, or they were just starting. I mean, I was not quite five when Gagarin and Shepard made the first human spaceflights. But I mean, I had my childhood astronomy books with artistic representations, you know, these great renderings of astronauts walking on the moon and going to Mars and the rings of Saturn. And I was just so completely on board with all of that. It was just the most exciting thing to me. 
And as I grew up, the space program was kind of growing up with me. So I was nine when Ed White made the first American walk in space and these incredible pictures of him in Life magazine. You know, I was glued to the TV for every Apollo mission. I had my little mission control in the den with, you know, my Ravel model kits of the spacecraft and the Saturn V and had maps of the moon, all that stuff. So I was really caught up in it. And right around that time, 71, there were Mars missions going on. Plus the the moon missions had um, geology in them because the astronauts were picking up moon rocks. So I got more and more drawn to the science that was going on. I ended up going to college to study geology actually was a student intern on the Viking landing, the first Mars landing. But I kind of had this identity crisis after college because I had always wanted to be an astronaut. But I had a a medical problem growing up that I finally came to grips with the fact that there was no way NASA was ever going to pick me to be an astronaut. And it took me a couple of years or so, a little less than a couple of years, to settle into actually by accident to become a science journalist and write about space instead of doing science. Because I really realized I need to do something that's more right brain than than practicing science. So I really felt like that was my my sweet spot, you know? And I started writing it uh, at a place called Sky and Telescope Magazine, which was a great place to learn to be a science journalist. I really enjoyed working there. And then it was like summer of 1984, I had this desire to do a book and I realized what I really wanted to do was a book about the Apollo missions and specifically the experiences of the Apollo astronauts. And that's what started me off on that quest to talk to the guys who went to the moon, ask them about their experiences. It took me eight years to do that and to write the book, but that's what turned me into a space historian. Mm. Well, before we get into the book, you mentioned there about the start of your career as a journalist. I'm sure the industry has changed massively, but people still want to know about how people got their breaks in these kind of industries. So I'm wondering if you want to uh, shed some light on, on how it happened for you. Well, like I say, I got into it by accident. It's funny because my mom was a writer hmm. of some note. I mean, she had Uh, short stories that were included in the anthology called Best American Short Stories, including a story that she wrote called Waiting for Astronauts, (laughs) which was loosely based on my own experience as as a kid, the first time my parents took me down to the Kennedy Space Center. And by luck, we happened to be staying at the motel where the astronauts all stayed. And I got to meet a bunch of them, (laughs) including Alan Bean, who became a lifelong friend, not at that time, but later. So despite my mom's involvement with that and my witnessing her at the typewriter, it never occurred to me to be a writer. But like I said, I had this identity crisis. I really didn't know what the heck I wanted to do when I got out of college. I had this geology degree. I loved the subject of planetary science, but I didn't want to do it. And I worked for Farouk Elbaz, whose name you may know, wow, uh, yeah. since he was one of the scientists who trained, one of the geologists who trained 
the astronauts to explore the moon from orbit. He was my first boss. I worked for him at the Air and Space Museum as a research assistant. I actually have my name on a paper in the journal Icarus about Martian dark markings. But I left that after about a year, year and a half to go backpacking in Europe, which was kind of a big thing to do at that time, 1980. And I didn't know what I wanted to do. I, I thought maybe I'd try to become a singer-songwriter because that's another really big interest of mine. But I decided to find a day job that would be something I would enjoy. And I was really focused on Boston as a place to live. And I called my old professor from Brown University, Jim Head, um, another name you may know because he not only was involved in the training of the Apollo astronauts, but is still a very prominent planter geologist. And I said to Jim, what do you know about in Boston that's space related? He said, give Kelly Beatty at Sky and Telescope a call. Well, Kelly Beatty was one of the upper echelon editors at, at the magazine. He ended up hiring me to work on a book called The New Solar System. And that was my entree into writing about science. And when that project was done, I stayed on the magazine as an, an editor. And I was writing about the early shuttle missions, for example. Mm. The early 1980s was a time when science journalism was really growing. There were a lot of publications. And I started freelancing in addition to my work at Sky and Telescope. So I was getting more exposure. I was getting more experience. And it just felt like, okay, the next step is to write a book. And I really was so obsessed with Apollo that it didn't take me long to kind of gravitate to that. So I left Sky and Telescope in 1986 to work on the book full-time, got a book contract, and the rest is, well, it's literally history, space history. <laughs> so let's talk about, uh, we're just at the moment and you, we just arrived at it. Let's talk a little bit about A Man on the Moon, the book that came out of that. And that book was I think for a lot of us in this community, uh, really was a cultural reset. I mean, it really just changed really how a lot of us just looked at Apollo history. So how did you set about doing that project? And, you know, what was the motivation at the beginning and, and you know, kind of, I guess, at the end as well? Well, first of all, I'd love to hear more after I go through this. I'd love to hear more from you about what that reset was, because I'm not okay. sure I've ever heard that. But I had a really strong feeling that there was a gap in the books about Apollo, that nobody had captured what it's like to go to the moon in a way that made me feel like I was there. And not just for one mission, you know, Mike Collins wrote a fabulous book, right? I mean, the best of all of the Apollo astronaut books, Carrying the Fire. But, you know, what about the other guys' experiences on Apollo 11? What about the other missions, you know? So I really began to obsess, is really the right word, about trying to put that down on paper. It's, it's really a good idea as a writer. It's really a, a good idea to be able to have your mission statement. It's good in any endeavor, but your mission statement be very clear so you can express it to other people and so that it, it sort of acts like a signpost for the writer. 
And my mission statement was, my bumper sticker was, what is it like to go to the moon and how did it affect the people who went? I know how I feel watching the full moon come up or any phase of the moon. You know, holy mackerel, what is it like to look at that world and have been there and have those memories in your head? So that was kind of my rocket fuel, right, to propel me into this quest to talk to all of the Apollo lunar astronauts. And I got to all of them except Jack Swagger, who had passed away in 1982. Now, I should say that um, I also had to learn to be a book writer. I had never written a book. I had worked on a book called The New Solar System, but that was a very different animal. This was narrative nonfiction, which was uh, a style that had become more and more prominent. I was heavily influenced by the right stuff because Tom Wolfe really showed me and everybody else, talking about a cultural reset, that astronauts were three-dimensional people with Mm. strengths and weaknesses and really fascinating personalities. And I wanted to do that for the Apollo astronauts. I, I also wanted to capture their context, right? So part of that is the technology. Part of that is the science they did. So some of the first people I interviewed for the book were the geologists who trained them. Mm. And the other thing, and I can't stress this enough, if anybody out there is thinking of doing a book, I really did my homework. Mm. I mean, I got, you've, you may have seen these things. They're online now. Um, Back then, there was no online, but I went to the NASA history office and I got all of the debriefings, you know, these hundreds and hundreds of pages, the mission transcripts, thousands of pages altogether. I got copies of the video that they sent down uh, during the flights, the movies they shot, the still photography. I immersed myself in everything I could possibly find about the missions and about the guys, the magazine profiles, the newspaper profiles, interviews with other people, work that other historians had done. I really steeped myself in it. And one of my favorite recollections, the very first lunar astronaut that I interviewed was Pete Conrad. And at one point he said, geez, you know more about the mission than I do, you know? (laughs) And that was just great. I just really reveled in that experience. And I did that for, you know, pretty much for eight years, working to get them to agree to talk to me, sitting down with them, sometimes for hours at a stretch, and walking through whatever questions I had and then responding to whatever they said in a way that I was able to make connections. I had this mental Rolodex and I can pick up a man on the moon and I could show you, you know, any page and I could say to you, okay, that came from my interview with so-and-so that came from a debriefing that came from something I saw in the videos. And you, you just find a way to meld it, to meld all those things together. Probably the hardest part of the whole thing was the writing the, 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 the craft, the level of storytelling. I really had to um, get my A game going 
And that took years. Mm. And that, thankfully, I had some very, very good editors. Do you think authors these days are given the same scope and time to find their voice like you were given? I can't speak for everybody. My general impression about publishing, and this is not just now, this has been true for quite a while, is that real editors are are quite hard to find Mm. and that most authors don't get the benefit of real editing uh, talent. I think it's probably a lot harder for writers today, but there are talented writers. I'll give you an example. I've just started reading the memoir by Bruce McCandless's son. It's brilliant. Whose name is Bruce McCandless III. So brilliant. I I heard about it. Yeah. It's It's super. I, I heard about it. I put it on my Kindle. The other day I started reading it and I thought, oh, this will be okay. This will be fun. This guy can write. Yeah. And I'm really curious, you know, how did he, how did he come by that? Yeah. With an astronaut engineer, left brain father. I mean, maybe that's the mother's genetic line. <laughs> I mean, my dad was an engineer. Okay. My dad was like, not the best English student, but he was a really good radio man. So the mother's line came down with the writing stuff, and my dad gave me the technical, the technical stuff. So maybe that's what happened with Bruce. Mm. It's a great book, though. I love it. Love the writing style. That's what really drew me in. Yeah, it's great. And I think the other thing I was trying to allude at with my question was that you researched this book for eight years, and I'm not sure that many books these days get the opportunity to have that level of research. And, you know, you were able to interview 23 of the 24 people who went to the moon, which is pretty special. And obviously that's not something that that modern authors can do. But within all that research, moving on, within all that research, what was the biggest surprise within all those interviews? I went into it with my own expectations of what the moon experience would be. And I was coming from a place of watching the moon come up and just being blown away by what went through my brain as I watched the moon come up and thinking, oh my God, it must just be so unbelievably, incredibly beyond your experience, beyond human experience to be there. And I thought that's got to blow every fuse in your head for a little while, you know? I, and I, my, my shorthand for this was, I called it a zap. That's got to be a zap. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, guess what? Um, these guys were not like me, right? They'd flown, most of them had flown high-performance aircraft for a living. They were from a different generation than me where guys didn't think a lot about what they felt. (laughs) They thought more about what they had to do. And they were, by the nature of their work, they had to be people who were not prone to self-examine and and stop in the middle of an experience and say, my God, look at me. I'm, you know, so there most of them didn't have this kind of, my God, I'm on the moon feeling, it, at least not for that long. Now there were, but I should say this, I don't want to, I don't want to speak in absolutes here because it's really a spectrum. Okay. 
So at one end of the spectrum, you've got Pete Conrad. And Pete Conrad insisted to me that he was the same guy before he went to the moon as he was after he went to the moon. And I've no reason not to believe that. Everything that, that I've heard from the other guys, everything about Pete supports that. But the guy who went to the lunar surface with him, Alan Bean, was more open to the impact of the experience. He described it to me, Alan described it to me as, as he said, it's like, it's like you're in the Super Bowl. And Pete was like Joe Montana, the veteran quarterback. Alan was like, I can't believe we're in the Super Bowl. And Pete was like, yeah, we're in the Super Bowl. Let's play. And that's <laughs> a really good distillation of the difference between those two guys. Then you've got Ed Mitchell, who's all the way at the other end of the spectrum. Ed Mitchell was a hard ass, you know, macho test pilot, but had this interest in ESP and psychic phenomena before he went to the moon. And he did the little experiment that you've heard about with the ESP and stuff. But then he, on the way back from the moon, he's the guy that had the zap. He was looking out the window at the earth and overwhelmingly felt that the universe was an intelligent, evolving entity, a kind of a, of a universal consciousness that he felt. And it completely changed him, drove him to delve into psychic phenomena. When he got back, he founded an institute. And, you know, some of the other guys were really cynical about it. You know, well, yeah, isn't that convenient? You know, he found a way to have a career post-NASA. But that's the nature of the beast. These guys are so competitive. You'd have to check for a pulse if they weren't, you know, <laughs> making statements like that. So, so you've got Ed Mitchell on the one end of the spectrum, Pete Conrad on the other. And then in between are these really interesting gradations, like Mike Collins, who talked about the impact of seeing, he said, the world in my window. That's what he called it. And that changed his perspective on things, you know? So I don't want to make it sound like it was all one or all the other, but I think I had to, the surprise for me was that so many of them weren't profoundly changed or affected, that they didn't have moments of transcendence. Mm. And it's just a matter of how a person is wired up. And a lot of the things that would make me have the response I do would make me not a good shuttle astronaut or ISS astronaut. I'd be a great space tourist. Yeah, me too. I still hope, <laughs> you know, to get to, to demonstrate that. So, you know, that was the biggest surprise to me. And, I, and I'll just give you one anecdote that kind of sums that up. Uh, Ron Evans, bless him, was just such a sweet guy. And I have to recommend um, Jeffrey Bowman's biography of Ron, which came out in the last year or so, really should check that out. He was one of the early interviews that I did in 1986. And um, we'd spent some time talking at the house. And I kind of been trying to go after him about this moment of life-changing transcendence, you know, and we were, we were taking a walk and I said, but Ron, what about the experience of seeing the earth shrink to the size of your, your thumb? What about seeing it get so small? 
And he thought for a second and he said, it was supposed to get small. And that's it right there. And we actually kind of laughed about the idea that maybe the distance between different types of people is more of a, of a distance than going from the earth to the moon, you know, slightly facile construction on my part, but still fun. So that was the biggest surprise. We've had a few questions from a couple of our Patreon subscribers, and one of them is relevant here. Uh, Todd Oliver, who is our chief meme officer, has asked, um, <laughs> how bummed were you that you were unable to speak to Jack Swigert, and did others help to give him a voice uh, during your research? Oh, good question. Um, you know, I, I wasn't majorly bummed um, because I just, you know, it's, it's nothing I could change. I did get some help from the late Al Reinert, who you probably know created the film For All Mankind and had been one of my great influences because he wrote a wonderful piece in actually a couple of articles in a magazine called Texas Monthly that came out right around the time I was deciding to do the book about his experiences interviewing the guys. And he very kindly lent me his, or gave me a cassette copy of his interview with Jack Swagger. So I did get a little touch of that. But you know, I just adjusted my storytelling. Um, and I, in general, I had to do that, right? I mean, I had to adjust the narrative to match where was the most interesting stuff. I'll give you one example. Okay, so three guys, Al Worden, Ken Mattingly, and Ron Evans got to do that spacewalk halfway between the, the moon and the earth. I ended up getting the most interesting stuff about that from Ken Mattingly. So in the 16th chapter, I described that spacewalk from a first person, you know, Ken Mattingly's point of view. Before that, what was interesting was Al Worden's poem about it. So I included the poem. I didn't even describe the spacewalk in the narrative of the mission. And then go to Apollo 17. The really interesting point of view there was Stu Ruza, who had trained to do that spacewalk as a backup. Knew he'd never get to do it unless Ron Evans broke his leg and was really kind of bittersweet, verging on melancholy, watching him do that from mission control. So that's what I did for that. That's really, that stuff is really fun. <laughs> so once the book was out, how did you end up connecting with Tom Hanks? And how involved were you with the miniseries From the Earth to the Moon? That's a really fun story. So I had a friend who had gone out to Los Angeles to be a screenwriter. She's got a lot of good credits to her name, including the Wives episode of the miniseries. Her name is Karen Jansen. Anyway, she hooked me up with the guy who was the production designer on the movie. Very sweet guy named Michael Kornbluth, who was responsible for making all the houses look like the 60s. That was the Apollo 13 set, right? Just to, to That's right. Yeah, I'm sorry. The Apollo 13 movie, I, I skipped a frame there. Yeah, so, the, so my book came out in the spring of 94, and Jim Lovell's book came out like a couple of months after that. And 
I knew Jeff Kluger by that time. He'd actually been an editor of mine for freelance work on Discover Magazine. I knew he wanted to write the book on Apollo 13. I said, uh, Jeff, I'm actually covering Apollo 13. Well, that didn't stop him, of course. <laughs> um, and he did a great job on, on that book. And um, anyway, the movie announcement came out. And I thought, oh, man, you know, they're making a movie of Jeff's book. They're never going to make a movie of my book now. And got to go to the set twice, actually. And during those visits, I met Tom Hanks. He and I are the same age. We're like born a few weeks apart. He grew up loving the space program, you know, told me stories about getting in the swimming pool to pretend he was Ed White, just like I did. <laughs> Only he was smarter about it because he had a brick in his <laughs> swim trunks to hold him under the water and a garden hose to suck air, you know. <laughs> I tried to kind of say, well, gee, it'd be fun to connect sometime, you know. And uh, Anyway, a few months later, I get this call, answering machine message, you know, Andy Jenkin, this is Tom Hanks. I don't oh know how God. I got your number, but I did. Uh, it's four <laughs> o'clock in Los Angeles. Uh, this is my private line. Please don't give it out. Give me a call. I want to talk to you about something. Well, that turned into a meeting at his hotel in New York City where he had spelled out the whole miniseries on these little cards. This is now the spring of 95. And he just brought me in on the ground floor. And so I was reading scripts kind of under the table, not officially, but he was sending them to me to look at, give comments. I got to watch uh, the filming of episode one and I had this tiny little cameo as the host of Meet the Press. I came back to watch the filming of, of a lot of the moonwalk sequences, which was very cool. It was in an enormous blimp hangar with um, guys in spacesuit costumes and 50-foot helium balloons on steel cables Amazing. so they could bounce around. I tried it myself. It was not as easy as it looked because the balloon kind of had a mind of its own. And when the miniseries came out, my wife, my, my future wife, uh, watched it and bought my book and read it. <laughs> wow. And then a couple of years later, we happened to be at the same opening of the new planetarium in New York City. And she recognized me and came up to me to tell me how much she liked the book and walked away. And I'm no dummy. I followed her. <laughs> and so that's how I met my my soulmate and my collaborator. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Wow, so wow. the miniseries was, was, was a real blessing in a lot of ways. And Tom Hanks is a great, great guy great to work with. Uh, it's amazing to hear. That's a great story. Right, before we move on from a man man on the moon, uh, we have another Patreon question from Thomas Seidel, who would like to know your experience about putting together the folio version of the book, which came out, I think, last year, uh, which is stunning. Did you have much to do with that, or is that something that's done by publishers? And No, 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 no. I, I've had that experience twice of doing an illustrated edition. The first time was Time Life Books in 1999, and I don't think they were quite prepared for me because <laughs> I basically just made myself part of the team, the production of the book, and I did a lot of the photo selection then. But for Folio, it was even more. Um, I selected all the photos. Um, and this is the Folio Society, by the way. So if anybody's interested, just go to the Folio Society website. It's a two-volume illustrated edition. And they came to me in... Um, in 2019 and then um it got going in the spring of 2020 during the pandemic it was kind of my pandemic what i did in the pandemic project 
um, I spent about six months picking photographs with my wife's assistant, Vicki Cole, and did a ton of Photoshop work on every photo. Every single one of them needed either some color correction or, you know, brightness correction. I made mosaics and I took out all the little crosshairs because I wanted it to just be clean like you were looking through a window into the astronauts' experiences. That was really fun. I put in some stuff there that is either rare or previously completely unseen. I have a friend in the Boston area who does unbelievable image processing work, and he was able to take the video of John Young and Charlie Duke at House Rock and run it through his magic and clean it up to the point where it's not half bad. You can see the two of them with this enormous boulder. Um, so that was really fun. Yeah. All right. We're, we're going to move on from A Man on the Moon. What is your favorite space history rabbit hole that it doesn't have to be related to Apollo at all? And can you please tell us about what you're doing, you know, in the future? We want to hear about your current projects, articles, whatever. I mean, I really would have to say that Apollo is my is my rabbit hole. Things are coming across my radar that just like, whoa, what's that? I got to look into that. You know, like when I was doing the folio thing, I was putting together a mosaic of the place where Al Shepard and Ed Mitchell stopped their hunt for the rim of Cone Crater. And, you know, it's this rocky undulating terrain. And in the distance, there are these big boulders, these bright boulders, which they ended up walking over to and photographing in closer detail. Well, I knew that those boulders were as close to the rim as they ever got. And that it was really not that far. It was about what, 60 or 75 feet away, but I really wanted to understand it. And I just spent, I spent like probably a couple of days <laughs> delving into that, going to all of the data, the, the uh, Apollo 14 geology report, all the stuff on the Apollo Lunar Surface Journal, Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter frames, three-dimensional, you know, topographic models of Cone Crater, just really going at it. So yeah, that's my that's my rabbit hole. And what about the future? Well, what I've been doing for the last 10 years or so, and is about to kind of come to fruition, about the latter part of 2010, beginning of 2011, some folks at NASA Goddard asked me to delve into success and failure in spaceflight projects. But really from a standpoint of human actions, human behavior. And I became completely fascinated and hooked on that question of what is the mindset, the mode of thinking, the attitudes, beliefs, assumptions that you need to bring to the work in something as unforgiving as spaceflight. We all know about the O-rings that cause Challenger to explode. But what were people thinking that led to that happening? What were people thinking that led to the Apollo fire? What were people thinking that led to Columbia? I have been working on this for the last 10 years, as I say, more than 10 years, really. And I put together a framework of behaviors that I call success behaviors, which come right out of Apollo. Apollo is the model for how to do it right. 
it's the closest thing we've ever had in human spaceflight to a perfect program. So I'm not talking about the astronauts here. I'm talking about the, the engineers and the managers and, and those people, the, the mission teams who are in there at the very beginning and have to see this thing from a, an idea to actually pulling it off. And so I've developed a whole framework based on Apollo, based on what the people who were there have had to say about it, based on a lot of other historians' work, based on a ton of oral history interviews, documents, everything, just what I did for a man on the moon. So I've got success behaviors. I've also got failure behaviors. Failure behaviors are things like overconfidence, hubris, right? You know, if you're very smart, you can, you have a danger of falling into a trap of thinking you're smart across the board and that you have nothing to learn from anybody else. So I've been teaching this material at NASA for five, six years now and also at the Missile Defense Agency and gotten very good response. And I'm now uh, in the last year of the companion book, writing the companion book to this course called Principles of Success in Spaceflight. I actually have a video uh, that I could give you the URL to that kind of shows a kind of condensed version of the course if people are interested. Absolutely. So I'm really pushing to get the book done by the end of the year in time for the 50th anniversary of Apollo 17 and the 20th anniversary in February of 23 of the Columbia accident. And this is really, I feel, is my going to be my biggest contribution since A Man on the Moon, or maybe, you know, maybe bigger in some ways. I don't know. I get, I get probably not, but I, but I'd like it to be big. Well, I think it'll be great. I can't wait to read it. It's funny you mentioned that because uh, we actually had a question about this. A guy, a guy called one of our patrons called Jim Frangioni said uh, during your Space Fest Seven presentation, you mentioned this book, and he wanted to know whether it is going to be uh, available in, for the public or is it just going to be an internal NASA document? Oh no, 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 no! It's not going to be an internal NASA document. It's going to be available to anybody. Ah. Fantastic. Well, I have another question I'd like to ask, if that's okay. Yeah, and then, Emily, I want to hear from you about the, the kind of yes. paradigm change. But go ahead, Dave. Well, I, I just saw on your website earlier that you were a founder of the International Association of Astronomical Arts. But what is it? The IAAA, that's really my tribe. The, those people are my tribe. Like I said way back at the beginning of this conversation, the thing that got me into being a space fanatic was the artwork in my childhood astronomy books. And space art has always been really big in my, my personal cosmology. And I have been fortunate to have become part of, way, way back beginning in 1982 when I was at Sky and Telescope, I started hanging out. I was invited to hang out with this group of space artists who would go to places where they could find landscapes that either look like the moon or Mars. We did a workshop in 82 in Hawaii. We did another one the following year in Death Valley. And yeah, the International Astronomical, uh, sorry, the International Association of Astronomical Artists is still a thriving organization, getting new members all the time. Check it out. It's IAAA.org. And Alan Bean was even involved. Yeah, there's a lot of great space artists who are involved in that, like Don Davis. He's one of them. Pam Lee, Michael Carroll, Joel Hagen. Um, yeah, Michelle Rauch. Yeah, Carter Emart. Aldo, they're awesome. So, Emily, 
Talk to me. Oh boy, now I'm being interviewed. What I meant by that was like, that was probably honestly the first book that I read that really taught me that you could write space flight. Like I, I read the right stuff and I, I, I was a big fan of the book, the right stuff, but I always kind of knew the right stuff. I hate saying this. There's some embellishments in it, right? Yeah, it, it's kind no, of it's true. There's a lot of dramatization in it. You know, it's almost like sort of a novel in a way. But um, right. the, the thing is, A Man on the Moon was like a novel, but it was it's real. It's not a novel. So it, it kept you engaged. Like I'd read some space history to that point, but a lot of it was reference work or it was mm-hmm. NASA books that read like reference work uh, <laughs> that very right. just dry. You know, y- they didn't talk much about the, the people on board the mission. I'm like, I want to know about the guys like I want to know about their personalities. I want to know about, you know, where their conflicts were there, you know, just stuff like that. I was interested more in that. You know, how did they get to where they were? You know, how do you get to that circumstance where you're just walking on the moon? Yeah. <laughs> the, a Man on the Moon was the first book, I think, that I read that really tackled that. And uh, it's become like, God, now I sound, I don't want to sound too butt kissy, but if Man on the Moon hadn't been published, I don't think I'd be doing what I, I'm doing now at uh, all. I haven't written a book, but I like that kind of writing where I like to come from every different person's perspective. Like, okay, how did this person see this situation? How did this other person in the same place see the exact same situation? How did the third person see it? You know, and how did maybe somebody overseeing it see it? I like to compile all their words together. And A Man on the Moon was the first book that I saw that did that. I mean, it's really like, okay, this is about as accurate as it's going to get. And it's it's fun to read. You know, it's not like reading a technical report. Like technical reports are nice, but they're just they're not exciting. You're just like it's very clinical, you know, so. Yeah, yeah, so that's really what I meant by a cultural reset. And I, I think a lot of people feel the same way. You know, I think a lot of writers, spaceflight writers in particular, I think a lot of us feel the same way. Like, I don't think if A Man on the Moon existed, we would have, like, the Colin Burgess series, the People's History of Spaceflight. I don't think that would exist. And mm. I'm not saying it's not, you know, it's not an original idea by Colin, but I think it's like... It paved the way. Yeah, it paved the way for that kind of series where it was more like yeah. sort of narrative nonfiction versus just like a technical report. Does that make yeah. sense? Oh, yeah. And it just feels it feels so good to hear it. You know, I mean, it just really is gratifying. Not that you have to include this in the podcast. <laughs> you probably just cut all this out. <laughs> <laughs> you know, as fabulous as the right stuff was, even with its embellishments, which were really a lot of the fun of reading it <laughs> but he didn't focus on the experience of the flights right he was talking about the personalities of the guys and the kind of cultural context of it the cold war you know heroic uh, aspect not a lot about the experience of the flight and so that was still kind of wide open after after the right stuff in a lot of ways so yeah that's what you get for having an astronaut wannabe turn into a turn into an, a, a writer. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, I think I can relate to that. Anyway, Andrew, thank you so much for joining us. This has been wonderful. Uh, we hope to talk to you again sometime. Thank you. My pleasure. Traffic, we read you loud and clear. And uh, for your info, Clipper got a visual on you, and he also picked up surveyor. <laughs> hey, Esco. Hey, where are we? 
Well, that was just wonderful, wasn't it? Yes, that was amazing. Uh, that was that was really cool. Uh, it, like whenever anybody's like, "Hey, I want to read a book about the Apollo program." This is the one. I'm like, "You got to get a man on the yeah. moon. You have to get it. Absolutely. No, you don't have yeah. a choice. This is it." You know? What amazes me is it was eight years' work as well. I think that's the incredible thing about the sheer amount of research he did, all those interviews. And yet, the book isn't massive, right? It's not going to weigh down uh, your suitcase if it's in your suitcase. You know, it, you can walk around with this, and yet it's got eight years' worth of experience, over 150 hours' worth of interviews that, that, that he had to do to get all this information. And it's his first book. Yeah. I mean, that you combine those two things, all that work and having to try and put that together into creating a book and a narrative and all that kind of stuff. And to have done it so successfully, that's special. That's a real special achievement. You know, one, not everyone gets access to the level of things that he had access to, which is amazing. Two, just because you've had access to it doesn't mean it's going to be any good. And somehow he got the access and he turned it into something that's good. I mean, there's an element of luck in that as well, isn't there? That, that, that he was the guy that, that got to talk to those 23 people at the time before when only one of the one of the 24 had died. He was at the right time to get that information. But also he was the right person, clearly, to, to be that person to have it. Because he could tell the story. Exactly. And that's not a given. And somehow he managed to do it. And and going forward, I think it is going to be one of the documents that we that is looked at by people studying this era. I, I really believe that. What I love about A Man on the Moon as well is I feel like as a writer, he's very humble. Like the way he approached the book, he didn't come across as like a fanboy of Apollo. Yeah. I'll be the first to admit I'm a huge fan. I'm, I'm, when I see these guys, I'm like, oh my God, you know. But with him, the way he approached the actual writing of the book and stuff, he was talking to these guys as sort of, you know, he was friendly with them, but he also was, you know, interviewing him. He was approaching him as a journalist would and asking certain questions and trying to dig deep if, you know, if they had some sort of, you know, spiritual or deeper experience. And some of them just didn't. Didn't. Yeah, some yeah. of them didn't at all, you know, and they just came back. They were like, whatever. I, I went and mowed the lawn the next day, you know, <laughs> just something like that. And I, I feel like he had the proper distance and objectivity, you know, as a writer to sort of tackle it without sounding too like gushing or fawning. And it really let the awe like of what actually happened and the guy's real personalities just sort of stand out. Absolutely. I've read some books and it's like you just want the writer to step away, you know, for a little bit. There's too much of them in it, you know, and you're like, I agree. Ugh. <laughs> you know, yeah, uh, I'm really looking forward to this leadership book as well. I think that's exciting, and hopefully, he'll come and talk to us when that's when that's due out, and we can uh, delve deeper into that because I think that's worthy of a, a of a podcast in its own right. Yes, uh, so I, hopefully, we'll get to do that. Yeah, I could see us doing several about that because that's something. I'll keep this short, but that's something that's always interested in me is a uh, incident enabling factors, which is stuff that contributes to an incident. Like it could be a decade or a decade or two before something actually happens, you know, mm. like sort of like the, the snowflake that pushes the rock that pushes the avalanche almost. Yeah, absolutely. I think he's interested in that kind of stuff too. So I'm really excited to read that because I love thinking about that stuff because you got to look at that stuff. 
Yeah. And the video he talked about will, of course, be in the show notes. But as always, if you are one of our Patreon subscribers, you can watch the full unedited video of our interview with Andrew in our members area, which you can find at patreon.com forward slash space and things. And if you've not checked it out yet, please do, because it really does make a huge difference to us. I'll also be putting links to all things Andrew Shakin in our show notes. So check them out as well on our website, spaceandthingspodcast.com. And so on to this week's news stories. There have been just two launches since our last recording. I am pleased to say that the Antares rocket, which carried the Moon Gallery, which we featured in last week's podcast, successfully launched on Saturday the 19th of February from Wallop's flight facility in Virginia. And the Cygnus cargo ship has docked successfully with the International Space Station. So yes, there is now an art gallery on the ISS, and hopefully we'll get some images of it very soon. Uh, if you don't know what I'm on about, check out episode 77. Also, on Monday the 21st of February, SpaceX put another 46 Starlink satellites into orbit on board a Falcon 9 rocket from Kennedy Space Center in Florida. So, <laughs> we have yet another update from everybody's favorite story. Yes! Yes! Last week, <laughs> everybody's like, oh no, what? Um, <laughs> last week, we mentioned that the rocket, which is out of control and headed for a crash landing on the moon, wasn't the SpaceX Falcon 9 lo- uh, rocket, which launched in February 2015, but was, in fact, a Chinese rocket that launched in 2014. Well, according to a Chinese government website, the rocket in question burned up in the atmosphere after launching, so they don't think it's them, and they've even presented some tracking data from the U.S. Space Force, which seems to back them up. Well, this is now becoming a bit of a mystery. <laughs> Maybe Steven Spielberg will direct this one. What do you think? Yeah, I think John Williams doing the soundtrack is what we really need. Yeah. Does anybody know what this damn thing is? In a world. Uh, <laughs> In a world where we have no idea what this thing orbiting the moon is. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, meanwhile, the Solar Orbiter spacecraft has captured a huge eruption from the surface of the sun. These are also called solar prominences. According to a statement from ESA, solar prominences are large structures of tangled magnetic field lines that keep dense concentrations of solar plasma suspended above the sun's surface, sometimes taking the form of arching loops. Did you get that? Because there'll be a pop quiz in next week's show. This image really is quite spectacular. It's the largest event ever to be observed in a single image alongside the full solar disk. Uh, It's really, really quite something. So check the show notes if you've not seen it already. Um, The Solar Orbiter is a joint NASA and ESA project, and its next close approach to the sun is on March the 26th, where it will skim past the sun at a distance that is 0.3 0.3 times the distance from Sun to the Earth. Closer to home, NASA has successfully retested the Artemis 1 rocket core stage engines after replacing a faulty control mechanism in one of those engines. It is now hoped that Artemis 1 will launch in April and will hopefully be rolled out to the pad in March for a dress rehearsal. Oh, I can't wait. Oh, same, 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 same. Hey, I got a story from my country. Well, I mean, it's it's from Britain, 
But actually, it's a Welsh story, so it depends what mood I'm in as to whether it's my country or not. Anyway. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> the Welsh government has announced that it's planning to launch rockets at sea and build satellites that will act as mini factories. Uh, I'm not sure what that means. Uh, but in a bid to boost Wales's space industry, space has been one of the UK's fastest growing sectors with 42,000 jobs in the UK, but only 1% of those jobs are in Wales. Okay, I've got this information from uh, a BBC article. And as always with BBC Space articles, I'm a bit confused. Anyway, it <laughs> says that the government has announced these plans, but then in the article highlights a number of private companies and their plans. So it's not clear whether the government are investing this in this or not, or just trying to promote it. But it, it says that the government is hoping that the space sector will bring in up to two billion into the Welsh economy. So I'm a bit confused. Anyway, space in Wales. Yes. Might be happening. BBC Space Journalism at its finest there for you. <laughs> they got a few things right. They they got the yeah, yeah. they got a few things right, but yeah, a little confusing. And yeah. finally, some research has been published which shows the results of a study of the brains of 12 cosmonauts after conducting uh, DMRI scans before and right after uh, they went to space. It appears that there are significant microstructural changes in the white matter that manages communications with the brain and to and from the rest of the body. Uh, further scans carry out months after the cosmonauts have returned are showing that while there is a reversal of some changes, a few of them are still visible. While these changes have been observed before, this is the first time scientists have used a brain imaging technique called fiber tractography. I think tractography. <laughs> which builds a 3D picture of neuron tracks. So this is really the best look that scientists have had um, at brains of space travelers. Uh, to me, it's I'm blown away that we figured out how to do all that. Yeah, same, right? I, I read that and I'm like, they can do that now? That's nuts. <laughs> uh, that's kind of scary, but wow. Uh, while changing in brain wiring isn't unusual, it's unclear what implications this new uh, space-related rewiring may have. Uh, don't say we don't give you highbrow news on this podcast you've had both solar sciences and uh brain science this week uh who knows what the world of space flight will have in store for us next week yeah i know right <laughs> neuron tracks and uh what was it solar prominences yeah, yeah. the definitions of both right? yeah lots of science the purple gang is very happy to be the guys that get to congratulate you as the undisputed space champs of the world and so that's it for this week. We're very aware that there is a lot of uncertainty in the world at the moment. And who knows what the current global political situation is going to have on spaceflight. But we hope that this podcast brings some entertainment into your life. Uh, we have a lot of fun making it. So thanks for listening. And thanks to all who contribute to help make it too. It means a lot. Yes, uh, it's very much appreciated. We're also very aware we haven't really talked about the first anniversary of the Perseverance landing on Mars or the 60th anniversary of John Glenn's first U.S. orbital flight. Alas, we can't cover it all, unfortunately. We only have a finite amount of time. But anyway, until next week, uh, don't forget, in space, no one can hear you meet. Space and Things has been brought to you by And Things Productions.